Spirit. Amen. And uh, so we want to be here to, to see God bless you through His Word. Uh, it's good to be here. Thank you, Pastor Jim, for inviting me. I send you greetings from the Chapel Hill Bible Church just down the road a little ways. It's great to be back at a pulpit and a uh, <laughs> place with pews. We, we just moved here to North Carolina from a suburb of Chicago called Wheaton and about 20 months ago. And we came from a very traditional church with pews and a pipe organ and everything. And we love our, our church now, but it's, it's all music stands and jumbotrons and a warehouse type of feel. So my wife and I love our current place, but we miss this. So it's good to be back. There's something about wood. That <laughs> <laughs> a special anointing this morning. So I think one of the underlying assumptions of this, uh, this time together is that uh, the gospel is not just the message you hear to come to faith to begin with. And I'm, I'm sure Pastor Jim tells you this all the time. But the gospel is everything in the Christian faith. It's not just point A, it's A to Z. Right? And it's not only how you come to faith, it's how you grow in faith. There's actually no other method. And so, as many pastors, by God's grace, are growing in their understanding of that truth, this isn't just some new method. It's going back to God's plan from the beginning. You look at Jesus, and you look at the Apostle Paul, and you look at the other New Testament writings, and it's just gospel shot through. They, they just don't diverge from that. So I love it that you're having this conference talking about how the gospel changes everything. And four topics happen to be chosen. But you could go to how the gospel changes vacuuming. Your now these are four major topics. You might call these headwater topics. And all of the other kind of rivulets come off of them. So that's good. But the gospel changes everything. So my... Part and prayer for you is that you would leave this time going, now how does the gospel apply to this one area of my life that the preacher didn't talk about? But now I know it applies, and now I see how it applies, and I'm going to shed that light on that area. Well, this morning I have relationships, and I know none of us struggle with this area at all. I don't know why we have this topic put on, uh, but, you know, we'll see what we can do with it. And uh, I don't want to have my thoughts ring out to you this morning. I have two hours, right, Pastor Jim? Sure. Okay, just kidding. Uh, I, I want it to be from God's Word. So would you turn with me, if you've got your Bibles, to, to Romans, the book of Romans. And uh, we're going to look at Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, and then also a little bit at Romans chapter 15, 1 through 7. These are actually... Book ends of a section of Romans. Romans can kind of be broken down into sections. And these are bookends of one section. And you will know how Paul kind of hits the same notes in both of these things. As he's capping off, starting and capping off this section. So Romans chapter 12, 1 through 8, 15, 1 through 7. And as I read this, can I have you stand as I read God's good and true word? This is what God says. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, 
that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them, if prophecy, in proportion to our faith, if service, in our serving, the one who teaches, in his teaching, the one who exhorts, in his exhortation, the one who contributes, in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And now, skipping over to chapter 15, verse 1 through 7. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice Glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. This is God's word. It is true, and it is given out of his love. You may be seated. Uh, some of you have heard of a, a young man I'm going to reference now. His, his given name was Christopher Johnson McCandless, but he was an interesting young man, and he took on the nickname Alexander Supertramp. Now, he's documented in a book called Into the Wilderness, written several years ago, but this young man was, um, was a maverick. He was very bright. Uh, he was a thinker, uh, but he also did not seem to fit at least he thought so. He didn't really fit into kind of human society. And so he was a bit of a loner. He always was as a kid. Uh, he, he grows up, goes to Emory University, does very well there. He could have done a lot of things, been a professor, one of these types of, of folks. But he decided he wanted to wander. So he was one of those guys that hitchhiked around America. He would just kind of write down his musings and, and loved being by himself. Freedom for him was isolation. Okay? Freedom was isolation. Well, he, he did one of these journeys and he decided he wanted to take it up a notch. So he was going to go to Alaska. And he was going to go into the wilderness and just spend some time out there by himself, living off the land by himself. And I don't know if you've ever been to Alaska. I have not been there yet. It's a goal of mine. But I've heard it is kind of one of the last untouched places in North America of utter isolation. So he goes up there. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, he didn't know what he was getting himself into. 
He had never been through an Alaska winter, and he really wasn't equipped. So he goes out, way out. No one's around. And he doesn't have the right equipment. He doesn't have the right skills in place. And here comes this Alaska winter. He finds this abandoned school bus. He holds up in it. And uh, there's no word from him. Well, some hunters come by and find this uh, bus. And inside it is this young man's corpse. And he had been uh, dead by, for about two weeks by this point. And they figure at his death, okay, they did an autopsy. At his death, he was probably 67 pounds. And, you know, he was a six-foot uh, man. And so he starved to death. Ironically, just four miles down the way, there was a station with food. And had he known, had he had the right maps and the right information, he would have been able to get to food and to, to help. It's an interesting story. I mean, it's tragic. But, but I think you look at this man's life, this Alexander Supertramp, and you realize while certain people are very extreme this way, they are also illustrations of a tendency in every human heart. And that is to believe that freedom is isolation. And by the way, you don't need to hole up up in Alaska in a deserted school bus to live that way. In fact, some people say that cities, global cities, like a New York or a Chicago, are some of the loneliest places in the world. So massive population density. But are those people connected? And sociologists say, no, not at all. You can be walking down a New York City street, flood of people on that sidewalk, and yet each of those people are disconnected from each other. So here's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about how the gospel addresses that human tendency. Because... That is the human heart apart from the work of grace. And so the gospel comes in and begins to do a new work to recreate what's going on there. And it brings people together. Now, I've chosen the book of Romans because I argue that Christian relationships are one of the core messages of this book. A lot of people believe that Paul was sitting there one day, and he thought, you know, the Reformation isn't going to happen for another 1,500 years, so I'm going to write the treatise on the gospel right now, so they have something to work with. All right, so I'm just going to write this treatise. No one's done a systematic theology. I'm going to write a systematic theology. So there he goes, and he writes this treatise on the gospel. Now, it is a treatise on the gospel. It's one of the clearest unpackings of the gospel. The message of being saved by faith alone, in God's grace alone, through Christ alone, for God's glory alone. Alright? No doubt. But there was a reason Paul wrote this book. And if you read it carefully, you will detect that reason. There is a broken relationship in the church. And not just between two individuals, but between two people groups. Have you ever noticed that in the book of Romans? Paul is addressing a broken relationship between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. 
Now, we don't know exactly what had happened, but some theologians believe that Claudius, Emperor Claudius, had kicked all the Jews out of Rome. And in the intervening years, the church became led by Gentiles. So the Jews were then allowed back several years later to find that this movement that began through a Jewish man, Jesus, and all of the original major leaders were Jewish, is now led by Gentiles. And so there was this friction. And actually several of the books, the book of Galatians, interestingly, same thing, unity between Jews and Gentiles. And so Paul says, look, there's only one way I can call this group of people back together to move forward as a church. And that is to tell them the gospel again. Because they are losing sight of the essential message of the gospel. Now, and we'll maybe get to this in the end, and I'm sure it came through yesterday, last night. When a group of people are believing the gospel, they're drawn together into relationships in the community, and they learn that rather than using their energy to fight each other, they're to use their energy to be on mission for God. So if you look at three things in this letter, it is the gospel, it is unity, and it is mission. In fact, that unity is all about the gospel, and that mission is taking the gospel to the world. In fact, do you know that Paul is on the move? He is writing this on his way somewhere. Where is he going? He is going to Spain, one of the farthest reaches of the known world back then, to take the gospel. It's amazing. And when those three things are happening, the gospel is believed, people come together in unity, and they go on mission. Then you have the glory of God. You have worship. Uh, so here we are in this book. Now what I want to do is quickly just walk through this passage, and then I want to talk about what specifically in the human heart gets in the way of this type of transforming power of the gospel. And then I want to talk about some values that I think every Christian and every church should have in light of this. Like, what does this mean to live this out here at First Baptist Gibsonville? So, first, let's walk through this passage. Uh, Paul is now getting into the so what of the book of Romans, right? So Paul often starts with the truth of the doctrine of the gospel, and then he gets to what does the gospel look like as we obey it and as we live it out. So here we are, starting in chapter 12, with the therefore. Therefore, in, in light of all that I've talked about in chapters 1 through 11, what does this mean for our life practically? Well, he says it's worship. It's all worship. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, there's the gospel, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, literally, spiritual worship can be translated your rational worship or your reasonable act of worship. In fact, I think that's one of the better ways to take it. Now, why does he put it that way? I think he puts it that way because you've got to remember how he started in Romans chapter 1. He said that the fundamental human problem is that we've stopped worshiping the true God, the Creator, and where have we re-aimed our worship? At the created things. We now adore and are led by and are controlled by the created order, and that is called idolatry. 
All right? And Paul says something very interesting. He says, we suppress the knowledge of God. All humans, Jew and Gentile, are suppressing the knowledge of God when we do that. That our original created image of God desire is to know God and to worship Him, but we are suppressing that. There's no neutral setting, in other words. Okay? You are either inviting God or you are suppressing Him. So, in chapter 12, to say that living this new life of worship is rational doesn't mean that Paul is all committed to the intellect. Okay? It's not about the shoulders up for him. It's simply saying you get your senses back when you trust God. You get your reason back. You think clearly again. You get it that He is the Creator. He is the one to be worshipped. And so these things, these good things that God has given us are not to be worshipped because if we do, they'll actually destroy us and all of us know that in this room. When we worship something that may be a good gift God has given us rather than a servant that blesses us, it's a master that destroys us. God is the only one that is worthy of being the master and who will bless us as we worship him as the master. So that's what's going on there with that reasonable worship returned to us. And so he says, now, do not be conformed to this world, verse 2, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, there it is again, and that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, that's all awesome. We've got this understanding of what worship is. It's God-centered again. It's the transforming of our minds back to having our senses back. But what does this look like? Now, at this point, Paul could have gone several different places. Will you note where he starts? Of all places. The life of worship in this letter starts with Christian unity. Alright? Wow. There it is. His high point. By the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Be humble. Why? But to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned you. And then he talks about the unity of the Christian body, having many members, each with its own function. And he goes on to how to use those gifts together for the same purpose. He says it's all about love, it's all about selflessness, and it's all about unity. And I want you to notice something. Paul, again, never goes anywhere without referencing the beauty of the gospel. Nine times in this passage, and then in Romans 15, he talks about something with regard to Christ, or to the measure of the faith, or to the measure of grace. Will you note that? By the grace given to me, according to the measure, in Christ, according to the grace, in proportion to faith. Now, some people read that, and they say, well, according to the grace given to me. So I feel like God has only given me two pounds of grace. So I'm only accountable to two pounds of grace. But so to Bob over there, he got ten pounds. And so he's probably going to be a preacher and he's more accountable. I do the books. You know, I make sure that I'm the treasurer. I got two pounds of grace. Bob has ten pounds. He's the preacher. That's not what Paul is saying. 
All Paul is saying is that we have this infinite treasury of grace in Jesus. Alright? That's the gold standard. And so anytime he says, according to the grace given to me, it's the same amount of grace. Yeah. Now, that grace will affect each one of us differently. Some of us have been given the gift of administration. I didn't seem to get that gift. Alright? Uh, some of you have been given the gift of, of faith, of prayer, of service, of mercy, and others' leadership and preaching and teaching. Okay? But it's all the same gold standard by which we operate. Okay? Christ, that infinite treasury of Christ, is that gold standard. Nothing changes. I don't care if you have one of the most behind-the-scenes roles in this church. You are to serve according to that measure of, of grace in Christ. Alright? I love that. So here we have it. And then Romans 15, same thing. We're finishing off this section. You will note everything between 12.1 and chapter 15 is all about how Christians should operate together in unity and love and selflessness. You know, 14 is how do you deal with controversial issues that people disagree about? Well, Paul says, hey, start with this sense of work with the weaker brother. All right? If you're the stronger brother or sister, you've got the stronger conscience, don't hold that over the other person. Serve them. Lift them up. That's what he's saying here in chapter 15 too. By the way, he quotes Jesus. Jesus is the gold standard. And he's quoting Psalm 69, which is really interesting because that's David. But he takes David's words and he puts them on the lips of Jesus. And he says, Jesus is the greatest example of this, that, that the reproaches of those who reproached you, and now he's referencing God the Father, fell on me. That Jesus took the curse, right? Jesus took the rebellion of mankind on himself. So there's the gospel. Jesus took the wrath instead of us so that we could be set free to yield to submit, to be selfless, to bear the burdens of the weak. All gospel shot through from beginning to end. Now that's wonderful, and this is so easy to obey. Let's close in prayer. <laughs> no, it's not. You know, this stuff is, is so clear in the Bible, but why is this so hard? I mean... Here's the deal. One of the biggest reasons people struggle with the truth of the Christian faith is what they see in terms of the relationships in the church. So many people, especially in America, especially in the South, have been burned by relationships in the church. I mean, think about people in your life. Think about one of the biggest obstacles we face as we are evangelizing and proclaiming the gospel. It is to people that say, the gospel isn't real to me because I haven't seen it transform people's relationships. I don't see this love. I don't see this selflessness. I don't see this unity. So what is it? What's going on within churches? I mean, we can talk about how unbelievers can't live this way, but isn't that just make sense for them? I mean, why do we wag our finger at non-believers who don't have the Spirit of God? 
And, and so we need to talk about what's going on here in the book of Romans, what's going on in the human heart. Well, I think there's a lot of ways that we could describe it, but it's, it's the heart condition that comes about when you try and live apart from the gospel. And what, what is that? Okay, if the gospel is that God does the work for us, that Jesus has done it, period. That he has accomplished, he has paid for our salvation. Then the opposite of that, which Paul talks about, which has been a fundamental issue throughout the whole Bible, is that we try and earn our own salvation by our own effort and our own work. That we, even though we are believers, often fall back to this disposition of, okay, grace got me in the door, but my effort keeps me in. Right? That I merit God's love. I merit God's affection. And so I have got to live a certain way, doing the right things and avoiding the wrong things in order to grow in my relationship with God, to be in a good place in God's eyes. Alright? And, and that's why... That the writers of the New Testament and Jesus were always attacking that, that moralism, that self-righteousness. Mm. Because even though you might be a Jew and within the religious community, or you might be an evangelical Christian, if you don't get that, you are completely subverting the heart of the Christian faith. Mm. God has offered everything to you. At the cross, your entrance into a relationship with him and everything thereafter. In fact, every nanosecond of heaven, you are sustained by the grace of God. At no point ever, here in this world or eternity future, will you ever be sustained by your own effort. God gets glory as he works for you. And when you don't let him, one of the things that happens in your heart is cynicism. Cynicism. That, I think, is what you see in people who are all about their moral behavior, their external behavior as the foundation of their relationship with God. They are cynical people, and cynicism kills human relationships. So picture, if you will, uh, I didn't bring a PowerPoint with me, but this circle and in it, the word cynicism, which goes that way for you. And think about all of these threads coming out of that ball of cynicism. One of those threads is insecurity. Okay? Insecurity is what naturally happens when you've based your life on yourself. Because you realize in your heart of hearts, you do not have the worthiness or the power to hold yourself up. But, you are trying to make it on that power. You're trying to show the world you can do it. But you always know you're on thin ice. Okay? You are not a savior. And you know that. And so you're always insecure. And I don't know if you've been around a lot of insecure people. It's fun, isn't it? <laughs> no. They are what I call life takers. It's so hard. All right? At, at one level, they're trying to suck you in. At the same level, they're pushing you out at the same time. It's awful. It's insane to be around insecure people. But don't smirk. 
because we're all insecure. Alright? So that's that's one thing. Apathy is another. Okay? Cynical people tend to be very apathetic. Yeah. And the gospel is supposed to change your heart. Not just on Sunday mornings, but every day when you wake up to the new mercies of God, you're supposed to be blown away by the truth of the gospel. But how can you if you're cynical? Uh, another thing it creates is pride. Do you know that insecurity and pride are just two sides of the same coin? Pride is your trying to tell yourself, I can do this, I can get away with this. And you're trying to tell the world that too. I can get away with this. I promise you, I'm good, I can do it. But pride will never allow you to be soft and teachable because you're in that position of saying, I got this. I got this. I don't need to know anything more. I got this. Right? So pride. Then presumption. Presumption. I know. I got this. In fact, I figured you out. Have you noticed that about cynical people? Is they've got you pegged. Right? And so they don't even let you in because they have a hard heart. But they also feel like, I've got you pegged. I know your motives. I see through you. I know what your words are saying. But here's what your heart is feeling. That's always a good relationship builder, uh, isn't it? And then these people, all along with this, are bored. They're constantly bored. And we're breeding, by the way, a generation of cynical youth. I'm sure these are not there, of course. But uh, I've seen it. I was a college pastor. Um, I see it in their eyes. They're just bored. And they're trying to muster up ways of entertaining themselves. But even those, and we've got awesome technology today. Even that is not really denting that boredom. And then finally, there's exclusivism. So if you're insecure, you're apathetic, you're proud, you're presumptuous, you're bored, that's a real warm, inviting community, isn't it? Right? That's the type of place you want to be a part of. That's the type of person you want to hang out with. No. There's exclusivism. There's elitism. Rather than this community of people saying, come, come, be a part of my life, be a part of our life, that stay away. Stay away. Membership is full. There's no vacancy here. So now, this can happen between people groups. This can happen between races. This can happen between churches, and this can happen between individuals. But whenever you are trying to live by your own effort, you are going to end up with this cynical heart. And it's going to destroy relationship. And so I love it in chapter 15, where it says in verse 4, talking about the Old Testament, for Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have what? Hope. Hope. Friends, don't ever let that be a throwaway term. It is the word that was introduced in chapter 5, that as sinners who were saved when we were sinners, we now have hope restored to us. Because you see, Paul often begins with the bad news, doesn't he? And that's part of telling the gospel, is to have the honesty and the gumption to first start with the bad news. What is it like to be apart from God? Okay? And, and, and you've got to have that 
before you can get to the good news. Because you have to know what you're being saved from before you can get to the beauty of salvation and what you're saved for. And so, Paul talks about the bad news in the first three chapters, and then in chapter 4 he talks about the beauty of faith and faith alone, and then in chapter 5 he says, look, you now are able to have faith because while you were a sinner, Christ died for you. Now you have hope. You have hope. And then Paul reiterates it here in chapter 15. And think about hope. Think about the, the emotions and the reality of hope. Hope begins to release that knot of cynicism in your heart. It begins to restore what the Holy Spirit wants to put there instead. So it begins to untie and unravel and diminish insecurity, and it makes you secure. Okay? Not because you had some new lifeblood pumped back into your self-effort, but because your feet have finally been knocked out from under you by the Holy Spirit, so that you say, I can't do this anymore. I cannot live on my effort anymore. I need to live every day on the merit of Jesus Christ. Not do, do, do Christianity, but done, done, done Christianity. Yeah. It has been completed on the cross of Jesus Christ, vindicated three days later by the resurrection of the Son, by the power of the Father. So now you are secure in Christ. You are connected to the truth of the gospel. You are now a passionate person. You are feeling again. Your heart is pumping gladly for God. You are a humble person. You are putting yourself below. In the words of chapter 15, you, you, are, um, you are allowing your strength to be used to bless and bear up the burdens of the weak. Or chapter 12, you are thinking with sober judgment according to this grace. Selflessly giving yourself to other people. You are now self-forgetful rather than being this me, 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 me person. You are who? Jay Thomas? What? I mean, you get remembered. You, your memory is jogged when you brush your teeth because you have to look at yourself in the mirror. But other than that, it's all about other people because Christ is moving your gaze to the other. You're interested. You're hungry. You're always ready to learn. In fact, some people say, gee, this whole gospel thing, <clears throat> like, I think I get it. Why do you have to bring it up every week? And right there, that's showing me there's a problem. But pastorally, in that moment, you don't punch them in the neck and say, dude, come on. You, you just begin to talk with them saying, what if the gospel is so deep that every week you can learn something new and grow deeper? Because the gospel is infinitely large. And what God wants to do is enlarge your heart every week, every day, to beat for it. So you're interested, you're hungry, and that is a type of person, and that is a type of community that is saying, come. Come. You are invited. Come and be a part of this. Come and be a part of the one who has created this. It is a welcoming, invitational community. 
Uh, I love how chapter 15, verse 7 says, Therefore, welcome one another. Welcome. I love that he used that word. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Do you, do you see what he did there again? He said, what is the nature of your salvation? That this God that you were desperately alienated from, that you are the one that rejected him and you were running the other direction, so gloriously came in and gave you his Holy Spirit, transformed your heart, and said, I welcome you. Come, be a part of my family. You know, the prodigal parable, all of these other stories of God welcoming sinners. And that welcome is every day. God welcomes you. And we are to welcome each other for the glory of God. So here is this joy-producing, God-glorifying, grace-oriented shift away from self-orientedness to Christ-orientedness and therefore to others. You know, so it doesn't surprise me that I'll have Christians come to me, even some people I'm very close with, some people even within my family who, who go to church every week and, you know, they're involved. Some of them are in leadership. And they say, but, you know, at the end of the day, I, I honestly, I get along with the people in my Rotary Club better than the church. I mean, that's, you know, we should all be engaged in relationships with unbelievers. Of course, we, we are to be missional. But those relationships are deeper and stronger than your relationships with the church, with God's people. Seriously, if this stuff is true, shouldn't the church be better than the Rotary Club? No offense to the Rotary Club, you know? Do they have a Rotary Club around here? I know what I'm talking about. Okay, Elks. Um, and it is. And it has nothing to do really with the Rotary Club or the church. It's this. It's that cynicism again. And maybe you're in that place. I don't know. Maybe, I don't know. You will have to tell me, Pastor Jim. Um, maybe this is the seed of First Baptist that begins to make this ripple out from here to the rest of the peoples who would fill this church. I mean, I guess I'm preaching to the choir in some ways, but that's where movements start. Right? Of this group of people saying, we are going to see the gospel destroy cynicism in this church and be replaced with the hope that the gospel provides. Not that it's some measure of a church's success that it packs the place for renewal services, but rather you're looking at when you offer people the gospel, how are they going to respond? Mm -hmm. Right? So what if one day this church was not only full of its own members, but this place was busting with unbelievers? Coming because they've been invited by hopeful gospel believers. And those people will hear the truth, the amazing truth, the truth that transformed all of us, the truth of the gospel. So put down your weapons, Paul says. It's functionally what he's saying here. Put down your weapons, Jews and Gentiles. And use your energy 
to trust Jesus more and to love each other more. So there's the truth of the passage. And as I've been leading our church that struggles with this stuff too, we've been formulating like what is it that we want to be and look like in light of this amazing stuff. And so I'm just going to kind of list some stuff for you. You can take note of it. And this is really designed for a church community, this church community of First Baptist Gibsonville, as it was designed for Chapel Hill Bible Church. But in light of this amazing truth of how the gospel changes our relationships by changing our heart, what does it look like? Well, one, I think you have to be committed to a church with a relational atmosphere. Okay? Um, now, different cultures embody that differently. All right, the, the church we came from in Wheaton. If I was up there, and it was one of those moments where the Spirit was really filling me, and I was just preaching it, no one was going to say a word. But eyebrows would shift, and I knew that people were moved to the bottom of their soul. Okay, so that was that was college church. No one was going to give me an amen. No one was going to raise a hand. They would just crinkle an eyebrow. You know, and then they would come up to me with tears saying, I was so moved by the truth of God's word this morning. Never would have known. All right? <laughs> Other communities, they're standing, they're dancing, they're saying amen. I love that. Our church is a mixture. It's amazing to get a little bit of a talking going during a sermon. So I encourage you uh, to do that. But a relational atmosphere is something that a church should really emphasize. Like, if we're really going to be gospel-centered here, we've got to be a people that really are actively encouraging people to give of themselves, open of them, uh, themselves up, to have a relationship. So you're providing even structures of just coming together, a fellowship. Yeah. Right? I mean, I love the study. I love thinking. I love the planning and leading. But, man, it's really important for pastors just to hang out with the sheep. Amen. Just hang out. You know, Jesus loved to hang out. It wasn't all a theology lesson. I have a feeling even Paul, okay, even the guy that asked for books at the end of his life, I, I love Paul for that, was a relational guy. I think he loved hanging out with Timothy and Silas and all of those guys, just chilling and talking about life. In fact, you're freed, I think, in those moments to really be able to talk even about Things that aren't supposedly directly connected to spiritual things like your car or whatever because you're undergirded by the gospel. Okay, the other thing is a discipleship culture. A discipleship culture that none of us are designed to grow apart from the input of other people. And so that's something we're working on. But what does it mean for you to develop a discipleship culture? And what I mean by that is it's normal and it's the culture of a church that you are being discipled and that you are discipling others. In fact, here's the thing. I don't think you need to come to faith, go to three years of Bible college, and get to become a Jedi a Christian before you <laughs> disciple other people. <laughs> you know, I hear that. I'm Me, disciple others? Do you notice that Jesus comes in and he just transforms people's lives and then suddenly they're missionaries? Alright, they didn't go to Bible college. I, I promise you because none existed yet at that point. They did not go to seminary. 
you know, in fact, sometimes Jesus had to say, hold on, hold on, don't go too public. It's not my time to go to the cross. But you can go to your village and tell them, you know, the demoniac in Mark chapter 5. His people will be transformed by Jesus, and boom, they're gone. They're missionaries. Mm -hmm. And so I think even here, you get someone discipled to a point, but pretty soon you're like, now who are you going to disciple? In fact, are you inviting your friends, your coworkers, your family to church? But I've been a Christian a week. That's all right. That's seven days longer than a lot of people in the Gospels. So a discipleship culture. There might need to be training. But here's the thing. It just needs to be something that's enculturated. It's normal. It's part of being part of the community here. Uh, number three and I, I see it right now, which is awesome, but gospel diversity. Gospel diversity. And, I mean, I really mean diversity. That, that honestly reflects the community around you. So, small town Iowa is going to look different than the Greensboro area, Gibsonville area. Alright? And it's going to be different than even the Triangle, which is even probably more diverse. But, that's important. You've got to make intentional steps to do that. So I love it that Pastor Jim has invited a diverse group of guys to preach. I, I don't know what you think of me. I'm called the generic brown guy. So I, tend to get, I get sucked into whatever people, their heritage is. So to the Italians, I'm Italian. To the Greeks, I'm a Greek. To the Middle Easterners, I'm a Middle Easterner. My dad is Indian. Uh, so he's from South India. And you're like, where did the Thomas name come from? I don't get that same Mattel Thomas. Well, this is cool. This is cool. But our family believes that the Apostle Thomas, Mr. Cynical Guy, right? Mr. Cynicism was transformed by Jesus. And, you know, the last thing you have is a mild rebuke. You know, he puts his hand in Jesus' eyes and the nail scars in his hands and and then he believes, right? And he confesses belief, but then Jesus says, hey, people who won't see this will just hear the gospel. They will believe. So what happens to Thomas? Well, he gets on a spice boat and he sails to the southern tip of India and he preaches the gospel. And we believe he died there. And my family, ancestors, were part of that original group that heard and believed. So, from the apostolic age till now, my family has been Christian, and we have the last name Thomas. Um, so, here is proof in the pudding. This guy up here, half Indian guy, my mother was from Texas, so talk about a crazy international <laughs> uh, family I grew up in. So, but you, you've got to do that. I, I love our church because it, it's actually very diverse. Um, we've got... Um, a ton of Asian brothers and sisters, and a growing group of African-American brothers and sisters, and then folks like me. And, and now, again, it's a university town, and we're right next to Duke and UNC, and so that brings a very international crowd. But on a regular Sunday, you're going to have scripture reading in Mandarin, or Spanish, um, or Korean, uh, or Japanese. I mean, it's amazing. And um, we love that. Now, that's not just for churches in our setting. But keep doing what you're doing here. Again, as I look out. Keep, that's not, it can be politically correct. But don't let it be. It's about the gospel. Alright? It's about the gospel. About our unity according to Christ. 
All right. And then, finally, the local church is God's plan A of this whole deal. All right? Yeah, you're going to have Christian brothers and sisters that go to other churches, awesome relationships. Keep investing in those relationships. Keep investing in your relationships with unbelievers. But God's primary unit of social engagement, I mean friendship, fellowship, community, is your local church. So one way I put it is the local church is your pivot foot. So you've got another foot that's pivoting around. You're being missional. You're investing in other Christian ministries or fellowships. Some of you might be in the Christian Businessmen's Association or other things, parachurch ministries. That's awesome. That's great. But your pivot foot needs to be in the local church. All right? This is God's way of reaching the world. In the New Testament, all of these letters are written to local bodies of believers. And it's just assumed that that's the operating system, if you will, of the gospel. That, that's how God delivers the gospel, is through the local church. And so make a real emphasis that this isn't, again, some exclusive club, but this welcoming group of people, but it is this gathering under the preaching of the word, under a godly group of pastors and elders and leaders, where, where people are baptized and you take communion together. And there's submission to these leaders so that if you're wandering, you've submitted to them and they call you back. The local church. And then, you know, I'm not going to tell Pastor Jim how to structure the church or how to do a ministry method, but some way of getting into pods. Because already we're a group that's too big to get to know each other real intensely. So whether you want to call it small groups or life groups or covenant life groups, I don't know. You can call. But somehow saying that a church of over 20 people needs to have break into pods. And so we definitely have to do that at the Bible church. But that's one way of structuring this, of just breaking yourselves into pods where you... I, I'd ask chapter 2, 42 through 47, you're sitting under the biblical teaching, you're praying together, you're breaking bread together, you're worshiping together. And by the way, what did God do for them and in them at the end of that passage? He added to their number. Right? He added to their number. Um, so I, I, I technically got left like 10 minutes. So uh, I, I was hoping there might be some Elon students, maybe there are some on the 20-year plan. I don't know. Um, but you can, you can pass this on if you see any uh, tomorrow. But this is good. We, we have some youth in the room and some parents in the room. But I had um, an opportunity to co-write a book a couple years ago with a good friend of mine on how the gospel transforms a specific area of our relationships, and that is our purity, our sexual purity, and our view of dating and romance. And so here's one way, I'll just kind of give you an example of how you apply it to a little subsection of relationships. And, and a lot of great books are out there, but we saw there was a hole in the market, so to speak, and that people weren't taking the gospel, really, and saying... What is it about the gospel that made God design it to where our, our sexuality was only to, to be displayed within marriage? And so we took a book to say, God designed it this way so that when you did that, you preached the truth of the gospel. 
that the reality of Christ's unique and exclusive commitment to his people, his covenant commitment to his people, would be known in our sexual purity. So that it didn't turn into just don't do it. Don't do it. Here's some methods of how to deal with it when you're tempted. It turned into here is God's vision. And here is me being faithful to that vision. And when I veer from that, I'm actually telling people falsehood. I'm, I'm preaching heresy. So you look at a young college-age couple. And, and um, one, they, they're going steady. Which means that they're exclusive. Which is completely arbitrary. Like, who gave you the right to, to take that person off the market? <laughs> and then, of course, they're... They're expressing themselves sexually. And, and, and I'm not purposely not just saying sex. I'm sexual. That sexuality is being displayed. And so they've decided that they are going to have a quasi-marital relationship. And the evangelical church, for the most part, has said, yeah, we're, we're happy with that. That's okay. As long as you don't go past certain points, we're okay with that. Rather than saying, whoa, Let's go back to the Bible. Let's look at the logic of all of this. Why did God create it this way? You start to deal with the why, not just the how and the when. Then you begin to be able to teach youth and college students and young adults and all of us that it's about preaching the gospel rightly. That has been the design for leaving exclusivity, emotional, relational, and sexual to marriage and marriage alone. And, um, and so at first when I present this to, to young adults and college students, I'm going to be taking our young adult ministry, the, uh, I'm going to be preaching on their retreat in a couple weekends. You know, they're, they're, you can see it in their eyes. They're, they're seeing me up there with a straw hat and suspenders with my buggy out back. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? But then you begin to unpack it and say, look, I am pro-relationship. I am pro-sexuality, but... I am more loyal to the pattern of the gospel being lived out in how we live. And I want you to be too. And if you are, you'll actually have greater joy. Like, I don't know any Christian married couple after getting married going, man, I wish I had kissed more people before I got married. Right? And you begin to work through that with them. And so you're bringing them to the gospel. You're showing them about this massive issue in being a teenager and a young adult. And you can see the wheels spinning going, wow, I've never thought about it that way. So let me bring it back to you as a church as I close this down. As you live this way, as you have your heart of cynicism removed and replaced by a heart of hope, as you trust the gospel more and more and more, you're telling people the truth as they watch you. You are preaching the gospel. Pastor Jim has the responsibility to get up here every weekend, unfold the Bible, but you are also gospel preachers. And so, First Baptist Gibsonville, I, I call you from the Bible, in light of the gospel, to have your relationships with each other. Preach this very gospel. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this opportunity to open your word.